Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Platinum, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development. We can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. We are at the beginning of week four in Psych 100 course from Queen's University. So let's get started. This is chapter 20, Sensation and Perception. The topics of sensation and perception are among the oldest and most important in all of psychology. People are equipped with senses such as sight, hearing, and taste that help us to take in the world around us. Amazingly, our senses have the ability to convert real-world information into electrical information that can be processed by the brain. The way we interpret this information, our perceptions, is what leads to our experiences of the world. In this module, you will learn about the biological processes of sensation and how these can be combined to create perceptions. The learning objectives differentiate the processes of sensation and perception. Explain the basic principles of sensation and perception. Describe the function of each of our senses. Outline the anatomy of the sense organs and their projections to the nervous system. Apply knowledge of sensation and perception to real-world examples. Explain the consequences of multimodal perception. As mentioned before, I am a student, not a teacher, and I'm sharing my learning journey with you around the world. Introduction. Once I was hiking at Cape Lookout State Park in Tillamook, Oregon. After passing through a vibrantly colored, pleasantly scented temperate forest, rainforest, I arrived at a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I grabbed the cold metal railing near the edge and looked out at the sea. Below me, I could see a pod of sea lions swimming in the deep blue water. All around me, I could smell the salt from the sea and the scent of wet, fallen leaves. This description of a single memory highlights the way a person's senses are so important to our experience of the world around us. Before discussing each of our extraordinary senses individually, it is necessary to cover some basic concepts that apply to all of them. It is probably the best to start with one very important distinction that can often be confusing, the difference between sensation and perception. The physical process during which our sensory organs, those involved with hearing and taste, for example, respond to external stimuli is called sensation. Sensation happens when you eat noodles or feel the wind on your face or hear a car horn honking in the distance. During sensation, our senses organs are engaged in transduction, the conversion of one form of energy into another. Physical energy, such as light or sound wave, is converted into a form of energy the brain can understand, electrical stimulation. After our brain receives the electrical signals, we make sense of all this stimulation and begin to appreciate the complex world around us. The psychological process, making sense of the stimuli, is called perception. It is during this process that you are able to identify a gas leak in your home or a song that reminds you of a specific afternoon spent with friends. Regardless of whether we are talking about sight or taste or any of the individual senses, there are a number of basic principles that influence the way our sense organs work. The first of these influences is our ability to detect an external stimulus. 
Each sense organ, our eyes or tongue, for instance, requires a minimal amount of stimulation in order to detect a stimulus. This absolute threshold explains why you don't smell the perfume someone is wearing in a classroom unless they are somewhat close to you. The way we measure absolute threshold is by using a method called signal detection. This process involves presenting stimuli of varying intensities to a research participant in order to determine the level at which he or she can reliably detect stimulation in a given sense. During one type of hearing test, for example, a person listens to increasing louder tones starting from silence. This type of test is called the method of limits, and it is an effort to determine the point or threshold at which a person begins to hear a stimulus. In the example of louder tones, the method of limits test is, use, is using ascending trials. Some method of limits tests use descending trials, such as making a light grow dimmer until a person can no longer see. Correctly indicating that a sound was heard is called a hit. Failing to do so is called a miss. Additionally, indicating that a sound was heard when one wasn't played is called a false alarm, and correctly identifying when a sound wasn't played is a correct rejection. Through these and other studies, we have been able to gain an understanding of just how remarkable our senses are. For example, the human eye is capable of detecting candlelight from 30 miles away in the dark. We're also capable of hearing the ticking of a watch in a quiet environment from 20 feet away. If you think that's amazing, I encourage you to read more about the extreme sensory capabilities of non-human animals. Many animals possess what we would consider superhuman abilities. A similar principle to the absolute threshold discussed above underlies our ability to detect the difference between two stimuli of different intensities. The differential threshold, or just noticeable difference, for each sense has been studied using similar methods to signal detection. To illustrate, Find a friend and a few objects of known weight. Have your friend hold the lightest object, then replace this object with the next heaviest and ask him or her to tell you which one weighs more. Reliably, your friend will say the second object every single time. It's extremely easy to tell the difference when something weighs double what the other weighs. However, it is not so easy when the difference is a smaller percentage of the overall weight. It would be much harder for your friend to reliably tell the difference between 10 and 11 pounds than it is for 1 and 2 pounds. This is a phenomenon called Weber's Law, and it is the idea that the bigger stimuli require larger differences to be noticed. Crossing into the world of perception, it is clear that our experience influences how our brain processes things. You have tasted food that you like and food that you don't like. There are some bands you enjoy and others you can't stand. However, during the time you first eat something or hear a band, you process those stimuli using bottom-up processing. This is when we build up to the perception from the individual pieces. Sometimes, though, stimuli we've experienced in our past will influence how we process new ones. This is called top-down processing. The best way to illustrate these two concepts is with our ability to read. Read the following quote out loud. I love Paris in the, the, 
springtime. However, most people would say, I love Paris in the springtime. Notice anything odd while you were reading the text in the triangle? Did you notice the second the? If not, it's likely because you were reading this from the top-down approach. Having a second the doesn't make sense. We know this. Our brain knows this and doesn't expect there to be a second one. So we have a tendency to skip right over it. In other words, your past experience has changed the way you perceive the writing in the triangle. A beginning reader, one who is using bottom-up approach by carefully attending to each piece, would less would be less likely to make this error. Finally, it should be noticed that when we experience a sensory stimulus that doesn't change, we stop paying attention to it. This is why we don't feel the weight of our clothing, hear the hum of a projector in a lecture hall, or see the tiny scratches on the lenses of our glasses. When a stimulus is constant and unchanging, we experience sensory adaptation. This occurs because if a stimulus does not change, our receptors quit responding to it. A great example of this occurs when we leave the radio on in our car after we park it at home for the night. When we listen to the radio on the way home from work, the volume seems reasonable. However, the next morning when we start the car, we might be startled by how loud the radio is. We don't remember it being that loud last night. What happened? We adapted to the constant stimulus, the radio volume, over the course of the previous day and increased the volume at various times. Now that we have introduced some basic sensory principles, let us take on each of our fascinating senses individually. Vision. How vision works. Vision is a tricky matter. When we see a pizza, a feather, or a hammer, we are actually seeing light bounce off that object and into our eye. Light enters the eye through the pupil, a tiny opening behind the cornea. The pupil regulates the amount of light entering the eye by contracting, getting smaller, in bright light, and dilating, getting larger, in dimmer light. Once past the pupil, light passes through the lens, which focuses an image on a thin layer of cells in the back of the eye, called the retina. Because we have two eyes in different locations, the image focused on each retina is from a slightly different angle, providing us with our perception of 3D space. You can appreciate this by holding a pen in your hand, extending your arm in front of your face and looking at the pen while closing each eye in turn. Pay attention to the apparent position of the pen relative to the object in the background. Depending on which eye is open, the pen appears to jump back and forth. This is how video game manufacturers create the perception of 3D without special glasses. Two slightly different images are presented on top of one another. There's a diagram here of the human eyes, so I would recommend that you would take a look on the YouTube channel or the open courseware to see the different locations because it's hard for me to describe if you can't see the picture. <laughs> here we go. It is the retina that light is transduced or converted into electrical signals by specialized cells called photoreceptors. The retina contains two main kinds of photoreceptors, rods and cones. Rods are primarily responsible for our ability to see in dim light conditions, such as during the night. Cones, on the other hand, provide us with the ability to see color 
and fine detail when the light is brighter. Rods and cones differ in their distribution across the retina, with the highest concentration of cones found in the fovea and rods dominating the periphery. The difference in distribution can explain why looking directly at a dim star in the sky makes it seem disappear. There aren't enough rods to process the dim light. Next, the electrical signal is sent through a layer of cells in the retina, eventually traveling down the optic nerve. After passing through the thalamus, this signal makes it to the primary visual cortex, where information about light orientation and movement begin to come together. Information is then sent to a variety of different areas of the cortex for more complex processing. Some of these cortical regions are fairly specialized, for example, for processing faces and body parts. Damage to these areas of the cortex can potentially result in a specific kind of agnosia, where a person loses the ability to perceive visual stimuli. A great example of this is illustrated in the writing of famous neurologist, Dr. Oliver Sacks. He experienced prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces. These specialized regions for visual recognition comprise the ventral pathway. Other areas involved in processing location and movement make up the dorsal pathway. Together, these pathways process a large amount of information about visual stimuli. Phenomena we often refer to as optical illusions provide misleading information to these higher areas of visual processing. Dark and light adaptation. Humans have the ability to adapt to changes in light conditions. As mentioned before, rods are primarily involved in our ability to see in dim light. They are the photoreceptors responsible for allowing us to see in a dark room. You might notice that this night vision ability takes around 10 minutes to turn on, a process called dark adaptation. This is because our rods become bleached in normal light conditions and require time to recover. We experience the opposite effect when we leave a dark movie theater and head out into the afternoon sun. During light adaptation, a large number of rods and cones are bleached at once, causing us to be blinded for a few seconds. Light adaptation happens almost instantly compared with dark adaptation. Interestingly, some people think pirates wore a patch over one eye in order to keep it adapted to the dark, while the other was adapted to the light. If you want to turn on a light without losing your night vision, don't worry about wearing an eye patch. Just use a red light. This wavelength doesn't bleach your rods. Color vision. Our cones allow us to see details in normal light conditions as well as color. We have cones that respond preferentially, not exclusively, for red, green, and blue. This trichromatic theory is not new. It dates back to the early 19th century. This theory, however, does not explain the odd effect that occurs when we look at a white wall after staring at a picture for around 30 seconds. Try this. Stare at the image of the flag, we have it online here in this figure three, for 30 seconds, and then immediately look at a sheet of white paper or wall. According to the trichromatic theory of color vision, you should see white when you do that. Is that what you experienced? This is where the opponent process theory comes in. This theory states that our cones send information to retinal ganglion cells that responds to pairs of colors. 
These specialized cells take information from the cones and compute the differences, the difference between the two colors, a process that explains why we cannot see reddish green or bluish yellow, as well as why we see after images. Color deficient vision can result from issues with the cones or retinal ganglion cells involved in color vision. Hearing or audition. Some of the most well-known celebrities and top earners in the world are musicians. Our worship of musicians may seem silly when you consider that all they are doing is vibrating the air a certain way to create sound waves, the physical stimulus for audition. People are capable of getting a large amount of information from the basic qualities of sound waves. The amplitude or intensity of a sound wave codes for the loudness of a stimulus. Higher amplitude sound waves result in louder sounds. The pitch of a stimulus is coded in the frequency of a sound wave. Higher frequency sounds are pitched higher. We can also gauge the quality or timbre of a sound by the complexity of the sound wave. This allows us to tell the difference between bright and dull sounds as well as natural and synthesized instruments. In order for us to sense sound waves from our environment, they must reach our inner ear. Lucky for us, we have evolved tools that allow those waves to be funneled and amplified during this journey. Initially, sound waves are funneled by your henna, the external part of your ear that you can actually see, into your auditory canal. During their journey, sound waves eventually reach a thin stretch membrane called the tympanic membrane, or the eardrum, which vibrates against the three smallest bones in the body. The malus, hammer, the incus, anvil, and the stapes, stirrup, collectively called the ossicles. Both the tympanic membrane and the ossicles amplify the sound waves before they enter the fluid fill cochlea, a snail shell like bone structure containing auditory hair cells arranged on the basilar membrane, according to the frequency they respond to. Depending on age, humans can normally detect sound between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. It is inside the cochlea that sound waves are converted into an electrical message. Because we have an ear on each side of our head, we are capable of localizing sound in 3D space pretty well. Have you ever dropped something on the floor without seeing where it went? Did you notice that you were somewhat capable of locating this object based on the sound it made when it hit the ground? We can reliably locate something based on which ear receives the sound first. But what about the height of a sound? If both ears receives a sound at the same time, how are we capable of localizing sound vertically? Research in cats and humans has pointed to differences in the quality of sound waves depending on vertical positioning. After being processed by auditory hair cells, electrical signals are sent through the cochlear nerve to the thalamus and then the primary auditory cortex of the temporal lobe. Interestingly, the tonotopic organization of the cochlea is maintained in this area of the cortex. However, the role of the primary auditory cortex in processing the wide range of future features of sound is still being explored. Balance and the vestibular system. The inner ear isn't only involved in hearing, it's also associated with our ability to balance and detect where we are in space. 
The vestibular system is comprised of three semicircular canals, fluid-filled bone structures containing cells that respond to changes in the head's orientation in space. Information from the vestibular system is sent through the vestibular nerve to muscles involved in the movement of our eyes, neck, and other parts of our body. This information allows us to maintain our gaze on an object while we are in motion. Disturbances in the vestibular system can result in issues with balance, including vertigo. Touch. Who doesn't love the softness of an old t-shirt or the smoothness of a clean shave? Who actually enjoys having sand in their swimsuit? Our skin, the body's largest organ, provides us with all sorts of information, such as whether something is smooth or bumpy, hot or cold, or even if it's painful. Somatosensation, which includes our ability to sense touch, temperature and pain, transduces physical stimuli such as a fuzzy velvet or scalding water, into electrical potentials that can be processed by the brain. Tactile sensation. Tactile stimuli, those that are associated with texture, are transduced by special receptors in the skin called mechanoreceptors. Just like photoreceptors in the eye and auditory hair cells in the ear, these allow for the conversion of one kind of energy into a form the brain can understand. I'd encourage you to watch the YouTube channel so you can see the uh, image of the map, a drawing of the somatosensory cortex in the brain map. It's really quite interesting. After tactile stimuli are converted by mechanoreceptors, information is sent through the thalamus to the primary somatosensory cortex for further processing. This region of the cortex is organized into a somatotopic map where different regions are sized based on the sensitivity of specific parts on the opposite side of the body. Put simply, various areas of the skin, such as lips and fingertips, are more sensitive than others, such as shoulders or ankles. This sensitivity can be represented with the distorted proportions of the human body shown in figure five. So if you're not watching this on YouTube, there's a really good figure here that shows the sensitivity levels and how much is um, in the brain areas in the human body that correspond to it. And they're all drawn in proportion to the most sensitive or the most innervated parts of the body. Next is pain. Most people, if asked, would love to get rid of pain because the sensation is very unpleasant and doesn't appear to have obvious value. But the perception of pain is our body's ways of sending us a signal that something is wrong and needs our attention. Without pain, how would we know when we were accidentally touching a hot stove or that we should rest a strained arm after a hard workout? Next is phantom limbs. Records of people experiencing phantom limbs after amputations have been around for centuries. As the name suggests, people with a phantom limb have the sensation, such as itching, seemingly coming from their missing limb. A phantom limb can also involve phantom limb pain, sometimes described as the muscles of the missing limb uncomfortably clenching. While the mechanisms underlying these phenomena are not fully understood, there is evidence to support that the damaged nerves from the amputation site 
are still sending information to the brain and that the brain is reacting to this information. There's an interesting treatment for the alleviation of phantom limb pain that works by tricking the brain using a special mirror box to create visual representation of the missing limb. This technique allows the patient to manipulate this representation into a more comfortable position. Smell and taste, the chemical senses. The two most underappreciated senses can be lumped into the broad category of chemical senses. Both olfaction and gustation require the transduction of chemical stimuli into electrical potentials. I say these senses are underappreciated because most people would give up either one of these if they were forced to give up a sense. While this may not shock a lot of readers, take into consideration how much money people spend on the perfume industry annually. Many of us pay a lot more for a favorite brand of food because we prefer the taste. Clearly, we humans care about our chemical senses. Olfication is smell and gustation is taste. So, olfication, smell. Unlike any of the other senses discussed so far, the receptors involved in our perception of both smell and taste bind directly with the stimuli they transduce. Odorants in our environment, very often mixtures of them, bind with olfactory receptors found in the olfactory epithelium. The binding of odorants to receptors is thought to be similar to how a lock and key operates with different odorants binding to different specialized receptors based on their shape. However, the shape theory of olfication isn't universally accepted and alternative theories exist, including one that argues that the vibrations of odorant molecules correspond to their subjective smells. Regardless of how odorants bind with receptors, the result is a pattern of neural activity. It is thought that our memories of these patterns of activity underlie our subjective experience of smell. Interestingly, because olfactory receptors send projections to the brain through the cribriform plate of the skull, head trauma has the potential to call anosmia due to the severing of these connections. If you are in a line of work where you're constantly experiencing head trauma and you develop Anosmia, don't worry, your sense of smell will probably come back. Gustation, taste. Taste works in a similar fashion to smell, only with receptors found in the taste buds of the tongue called taste receptor cells. To clarify a common misconception, taste buds are not the bumps on your tongue, but are located in small divots around these bumps. These receptors also respond to chemicals from the outside environment except these chemicals called testants are contained in the food we eat. The binding of these chemicals with taste receptor cells results in our perception of the five basic tastes, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and savory. Although some scientists argue that there are more. Mm-hmm. Researchers used to think these tastes form the basis of for a map-like organization of the tongue. There is even a clever rationale for the concept about how the back of the tongue sensed bitter so we would know to spit out the poisons, and the front of the tongue sensed sweet so we could identify high-energy foods. 
However, we now know that all areas of the tongue with taste receptor cells are capable of responding to every taste. During the process of eating, we are not limited to our sense of taste alone. While we are chewing, food odorants are forced back up to the areas that contain olfactory receptors. This combination of taste and smell gives us the perception of flavor. If you have doubts about the interaction between these two senses, I encourage you to think back to consider how the flavors of your favorite foods are impacted when you have a cold. Everything is pretty bland and boring, right? Putting it all together, multimodal perception. Though we have spent the majority of this module covering the senses individually, our real-world experiences is often multimodal, involving combinations of our senses into one perceptual experience. This should be clear after reading the description of walking through the forest at the beginning of the module. It was a combination of senses that allowed for that experience. It shouldn't shock you to find out that at some point, information from each of our senses becomes integrated. Information from one sense has the potential to influence how we perceive information from another, a process called multimodal perception. Interestingly, we actually respond more strongly to multimodal stimuli compared to the sum of each single modality together, an effect called superadditive effect of a multisensory integration. This can explain how you're still able to understand what friends are saying to you at a loud concert, as long as you're able to get visual cues from watching them speak. If you were having a quiet conversation at a cafe, you would likely wouldn't need these additional cues. In fact, the principle of inverse effectiveness states that you are less likely to benefit from additional cues from other modalities if the initial unimodal stimulus is strong enough. Because we are able to process multimodal sensory stimuli and the results of those processes are quantitatively different from those of unimodal stimuli, it's a fair assumption that the brain is doing something quantitatively different when they're being processed. There's been a growing body of evidence in the mid-90s on the neural correlates of multimodal perception. For example, neurons that respond to both visual and auditory stimuli have been identified in the superior temporal sulcus. Additionally, multimodal what and where pathways have been proposed for auditory and tactile stimuli. We aren't limited to reading about these regions of the brain and what they do. We can experience them with a few interesting examples, including the McGurk effect and double flash illusion. So the chapter ends with a link to uh, some videos, and I will share those in the show notes so you can actually visually see what they're talking about. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chapter, and that is a lot of new vocabulary to take in. So I hope I, I'm trying to get better at the pronunciation, but sometimes it's a struggle. I'm just going to be honest about that. And if you like the show, share it with someone you know, and maybe give us a thumbs up. Add some tips in the comment section if you like, because you deserve to pass this course. You deserve to have the knowledge, the inspiration that follows it, and you deserve to live a more inspired life.